Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin. I'm a senior policy fellow here at ECFR, and I'm standing in this week for the podcast's regular host, Mark Leonard. In today's episode, we're looking at Libya. Now, obviously, Libya is a vitally important country for Europe. It's close. It has big oil reserves. It's been the source of major refugee flows and a base for the Islamic State. And now it's the site of an escalating civil war that's drawn in many regional powers. Yet Europe has, at least recently, really been a marginal player in Libya, with countries like Russia, Turkey and the United Arab Emirates much more heavily involved. Last weekend, there was a big international conference in Berlin, which really represented Europe's attempt to get back in the game on Libya. So how did it go? And what does Libya show about European foreign policy more generally? With me to discuss this, I have three ECFR experts. First, Tarek Megarisi, policy fellow with our Middle East and North Africa program, who specializes in Libya. From Rome, Arturo Varvelli, the recently joined as head of ECFR's Rome office and a senior policy fellow, also working closely on Libya. And from Istanbul, we have Asli Aydintashbash, a senior policy fellow, who follows Turkey. So Tarek, if I can start with you, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, there were, from European side at least, uh, high expectations about the conference. Did it achieve what the organizers hoped? I think so. Um, but that was perhaps the product of tempered expectations rather than high expectations. This conference in Berlin was the product of perhaps four or five months of senior officials meetings from P5 of the Security Council and all of the states currently involved in Libya. We started as the idea to try to organize this kind of mess of international meddling in Libya and to gain a commitment to respect and uh, not violate the arms embargo, which seems to be violated on a weekly basis. So throughout these senior official meetings, uh, a 55-point communique on the way forward was agreed, and everybody expected that it was to be signed and formally committed to on Sunday's Berlin conference. And that's indeed what did happen. There was also a bit of a surprise when the two Libyans, President Siraj of the UN-backed government of National Accord and his rival uh, Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, both put forward the names of military officers who can carry on some military-to-military negotiations, which was one of the steps outlined in the communique. The other side of the coin is that you know such commitments have been made in the past. And I think it took less than 24 hours for the commitment to respect the arms embargo to be broken by the United Arab Emirates. The ceasefire which was in place or the truce which was in place is steadily being broken. Um, There's an oil embargo announced uh, the day before the conference which remains in place. And of course those two Libyans who were present refused to meet each other and One of them in particular, Khalifa Haftar, refused to condone or sign up to the communique which was um, agreed to in Berlin. So a bit of a mixed bag overall. So do you think, I mean, looking, you know, in in diplomatic terms, clearly an an achievement to gather the parties together and to to get the the outside players to, to make these commitments. But do you see the kind of underlying dynamics of the conflict as being really substantially different after Berlin? 
Not particularly. Um, and once again, I think it's a matter of, of expectations. I think in Germany, they always considered that this would be a process rather than a one-off uh, event. They understand the depth to which different countries are invested in Libya and that it's not a kind of overnight process to get them to disengage. So one dynamic which is slightly different is that Europe is a bit more central now. And You know, one thing that was agreed to in this communique was follow-up committees. So I think there will be a meeting of foreign ministers sometime next month that will discuss the implementation of this. And this is the continuation of the process that matters and that keeps the kind of diplomatic channels alive. And the format of Berlin, which for the first time had everybody interfering in Libya around the same table. Yeah, that's the, the promising side of it or the updated dynamic. Arturo, obviously... Italy is, you know, perhaps the European country that's most directly and strongly affected by events in Libya. It's followed the developments there closely. From the Italian perspective, how do you see European positioning and policy on Libya now? The Italian government has welcomed the final declaration following the Berlin conference in Libya with a sort of moderate degree of optimism, because in the last weeks, uh, the Italian government has been accused of neglecting the Libyan crisis, by also by the, not only by the analysts, but also by the public opinion. And so I think that Italy is very worried, was very worried about the possible resolution of the crisis by Moscow which would have involved Russia and Turkey in the process to detriment of European and Italian interests. So Italy, for, for me, has also made mistakes in drafting its Libya policy because this, the, the position of equidistance from the two antagonists of, of the Libyan crisis, uh, Sarraj and Daftar, that Italy has recently taken, has in fact proved to be, to be very, very weak. Because Italy didn't gain position in, in after friendship, but at the same time, Rome lost its leverage toward the, the GNA, permitting to Erdogan to have strong relation, military relation with the government of Serraj. So I think that the Berlin summit in the Italian perception succeeded in relaunching an European engagement. And uh, This is a fair success for the German diplomacy, succeeding where Paris, for example, and Rome failed in, in the past. But I think it's a good result, but only from an European integration process perspective. It's not a good result from the point of view of European and Italian interests in the, in the Libyan crisis, which still remain highly exposed. Now, obviously, one of the, I think we'll go on in a few minutes to discuss the reason why perhaps Europe has lost the initiative or been eclipsed by these other powers that you mentioned, Russia and Turkey in particular. But one of the factors may have been European divisions. And clearly, on Libya, there's been a, a long-standing split between most EU member states, and Rome in particular, which have you know, tended to prioritize the UN-backed government of Siraj, and then the French, who have been a bit more behind uh, the would-be strongman, General Haftar. Do you see, from an Italian perspective, do you see now um, that some of these divisions are, are perhaps being healed or at least reduced? 
It's a little bit, bit the reviews, but sure, there, there, there are, again, uh, some important division, uh, in particular between Italy and France, because I think Emmanuel Macron, France, which has instrumental in, in giving after an international political role by putting him on, on, on the same political plane as the GNA. We have to remember, for example, the two summits in uh, 2017 and another one in 2018. So I think that um, France seems less assertive in supporting AFTAR, but is not pivoting, pivoting away from its pro-AFTAR stance. I think that the AFTAR transformation from military actor to politician uh, representing Cyrenaica's interests on the international stage uh, has failed because AFTAR is not a politician, but remain a strongman a military strong man, and this is a failure by the French diplomacy, I think. But France but is supporting today the after in this crisis. So on the other side, Italy has uh, had been moving away from its support of Serrage and was making uh, over towards after a sort of, of shifting that at the Palermo conference last uh, no, November 2018 was very evident, Italy tried to manage a sort of equidistance between antagonists of, of the Libyan crisis. But I think that this position is very weak. Italy uh, didn't gain position, but, but at the same time loses leverage towards the, the GNA. And so Italy, Italy policy at the moment is a sort of wait and see. Asli, if I can come to you now, clearly in, in contrast to the Europeans, Turkey has taken a, a very direct role in the conflict and has voted, you know, if not with its feet, at least with the Syrian fighters under its control and obviously has sent in weapons as well. What, at a time when, when Turkey is also heavily involved in Syria, what exactly is Turkey trying to achieve with its kind of stepped up move into Libya? The political background is a Turkey that feels not just more confident, but also I think it particularly President Erdogan, uh, feels that Turkey is destined to be a great power in 21st century in an age of great power competition. And the motto that you hear in Ankara all the time is that in order that Turkey is that Turkey's military footprint in the region is necessary to expand its global and regional standing. With that background, I think there's three main reasons why Turks have delved into the uh, Libyan story, uh, and very abruptly so. The first is there is you know financial reasons meaning there have been roughly up to 18 billion dollars of libyan debt to turkish contractors and companies that have remained from Qaddafi area and the feeling i guess is that if uh, haftar forces win take over tripoli turks would never see a, a penny so i mean the, the, this is not the main motivation but i think it's an important one the other issue is cyprus and eastern mediterranean and the sort of brewing disputes and hydrocarbon resources over there i think turks see a new fault line in the region one backed by uae and saudi arabia uh, sort of they they think of the 
Energy Corporation in Eastern Mediterranean between uh, Egypt, Israel, and Greece and Cyprus is effectively an effort to box in Turkey in uh, in the Mediterranean. So I think there is a bit of a, the Libyan uh, entry and the signing of a maritime deal with GNA is a response to that. Uh, so Turkey signed in December two agreements with the government in Tripoli, a maritime and security agreement. And in January, basically, Turkish parliament voted for deployment of Turkish troops in Libya in a vote whereby you only had AKP, uh, Erdogan's AKP government and their nationalist allies in the parliament and the opposition strongly opposed. But nonetheless, I think uh, Turkey is now deploying officers in the area in Tripoli and around and uh, also has been for some time covertly providing assistance, uh, technical assistance and drones. I think the idea is not letting, they seem adamant not to let Tripoli fall, so to speak. So that seems to be the Turkish concern, not allowing Tripoli to fall. I don't think they are necessarily thinking that this war could be won by either side. But I think sort of a military stalemate that would lead to further political negotiations seems to be Turkey's main goal in this whole conflict. So you talked about the Syrian opposition and sending Syrian opposition. But first and foremost, Turks want to have a say in these negotiations. So from that perspective, even though Berlin has not necessarily ended the war. It has highlighted Turkey's role, both Moscow meeting before and then the Berlin process. So I I feel that Ankara is somewhat happy about it. And secondly, the Syrian issue, uh, it's a very controversial decision, of course, sending Syrian armed opposition forces and militia groups that are uh, basically Turkey-controlled militia groups. Uh, It's very controversial both for Europeans and uh, from the point of view of Syrians. I I know that Syrian opposition people, political opposition in diaspora and uh, the ones that are taking part in the constitutional process are worried about this because they feel it does delegitimize to an extent what they're trying to achieve in Syria. But nonetheless, I think the Turkish response to the allegation that they're creating their own mercenaries, uh, they, they, they seem to be saying, uh, what's new? In other words, there is uh, forces from, I, I believe there's Sudanese uh, forces in, uh, that are fighting alongside Haftar, and there is other uh, mercenaries. Erdogan always, in every speech he makes about Libya, uh, he underlines the presence of the Wagner group, 2,500 people, he says, from the Wagner group that are representing the Russian equation. So I think there is not openly, not publicly, but 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 privately, Turkish officials are saying, you know, everybody is sending forces to Libya. Why not us? Tarek, let's let's take a step back now and look at the wider implications for Europe, because I think particularly when there was that meeting, the Turkish-Russian meeting, where they were attempting to, as it were, kind of set up a, a, a ceasefire or some kind of deal between their respective proxies. There was a sense that Europe was maybe missing out, and perhaps that was because Europe wasn't a military player, and that the, the regional powers that were there with their forces were kind of calling the shots. Ultimately, of course, that deal didn't come off because General Haftar walked away. But what do you think there is any truth to this idea that somehow, you know, this is a a military fight and it's the the military partners who are ultimately going to be most influential? Yeah, I think that's an accurate description of the dynamic at play. 
you know, one year ago, Europe was the central actor um, in the Libya crisis because it was seen as the referee, uh, as the collection of states with the most influence amongst Libyan actors, uh, and as those who would ultimately play the largest part in, in guiding the political transition or process forward. Europe's inability to, to really dampen the conflict or, or end the war or take a strong position either around principle or towards de-escalation has, has meant that the value of that political capital has, has dwindled rapidly. And I think the best example of that is the kind of prickliness of President Siraj these days. Uh, he was interviewed a couple of days ago about these uh, Syrian mercenaries sent by Turkey. And his response was quite sharp in that we will work with anybody who will help us. Um, when asked a similar question in Berlin, he, he turned it around on the Europeans. He said, where were you? We were waiting for you. You didn't come to help us, so we had to find help somewhere else. And this shows the danger of the war dynamic for Europeans, because it's an arena where, where Europe is not going to get involved on either side of the battle that takes place. And therefore, their value as allies um, will always or will be eternally shrinking against the potential value of actors who are more decisive, who are more willing to get involved and perhaps have the capability to rapidly um, create changes on the ground, especially Russia and Turkey. And yet it doesn't seem as if either side is in a position to prevail militarily. And that suggests ultimately that perhaps there could be a role for, you know, the, the more neutral arbiter to come in with kind of international legitimacy and help seal the deal. Is, th is that a plausible role for Europe? Or do you think that the EU really needs to, you know, somehow change its approach to Libya if it's going to, to gain influence? Yeah, I think that is the ideal role for Europe, and it's one that, that plays to its strengths a lot more than anything it can do in, in wartime. Um, unfortunately, it, it needs to find a way to meld kind of diplomatic edge to this overall expertise that can feed into any process that is formed. You know, as you rightly said, there isn't a military solution, although some some actors do think that that is the case. But Turkey's intervention, the way it came about and the kind of diplomatic activity that surrounded it, very clearly suggested that Turkey is trying to leverage this into a deal, into a new status quo, and to feed back into the process in a way that will cement it, its influence. That could have brought Europe back in the game. Uh, the Berlin conference was perhaps the perfect opportunity for Europe to legitimize the process going forward and to stamp itself back on proceedings. However, it does need to find a way to pressure both the international actors involved to stop feeding and driving the conflict, particularly the UAE in this instance. Uh, and it also needs to find a way to coerce Libyan actors to take part and to not spoil. It needs to regain the, the fear that any referee needs to have in order to properly do his job. And Arturo, from an Italian perspective, what chance do you see that, that Europe is going to be able to take that step to regain the, you know, the kind of fear factor that uh, Tarek is talking about? Totally agree with, with Tarek. I, I think that the, the Berlin conference also marked uh, just the preliminary step of the conflict resolution in Libya. But that this, the process is still long, I, I, I think, and I'm not really very optimistic because I think that this sort of appeasement towards after 
is not the better way to to contain him. In fact, he has already broken the, the, the truce, bombing the, the Tripoli airport and other sides in the last days. So without any kind of sanction, and this is the, the problem, I think that you have to work on a, a mechanism of sanction. But the problem is that I don't think that in the international community, the West in particular, and, and you, and also in the EU, there is the political will to really stop this kind of action by, in particular, United Arab Emirates and, and Egypt. I think there is no, for example, there is no the recognition in, in all the declaration, there is no the recognition that Aftar is the aggressor, is the attacker, and the GNA is the assaulted. And so with this false premises, it's very difficult to try to elaborate current strategy to contain after. Asli, one of the kind of interesting dynamics that we see in Libya, as in Syria, is this rather complex relationship between Turkey and President Erdogan and Russia and, and Vladimir Putin, you know, in one sense, they're enemies, they're on opposing sides, and yet they seem to have this ability to, to do business together, to see things in sort of similar ways. And there is this sense that this is kind of the era of the strongman actor around the, the Mediterranean, and they are comfortable in that role. Do you think from your perspective, is that, uh, you know, how people in Turkey see the way things are going in the Mediterranean? Or do you think it's, at some point they see the limits, this kind of military role, and that they'll be happy to, to hand things back to a, a more internationally legitimate uh, diplomatic solution? I think uh, this is absolutely a very interesting aspect of the entire story, in my view, the Turkish-Russian relationship, the growing Turkish-Russian relationship, and, and basically the personal relationship with, uh, between Erdogan and Putin, not just the way they're able to compartmentalize their differences, both in Syria and in Libya, but the sort of the very, very self-aware nature of the two be representing two resurgent powers and wanting a role in the on the global stage. I think uh, we know their differences in Syria and how they have somehow managed to make the Astana process work, both in terms of creating a safe zone in Turkey's north and in Idlib. Uh, it's not without uh, its casualties. This whole compartmentalization in, the, in this case, the casualty is actually a very physical casualty for the Syrian people who live in Idlib. But nonetheless, what I see happening is that both powers are entirely uh, sort of satisfied with the way this business is working. Whereas most Western observers have thought, you know, this is just tactical. Any moment there's going to be a fallout. Well, it's been a number of years, you know, and a, a large uh, delivery of S four hundreds, and it, ha it and the relationship is still sticking. In fact, in an interview on his way back from Berlin to journalists who were traveling with him on his plane, Erdogan, Erdogan was asked about Libya and how the Russian support for Haftar it puts him at odds with his own position, rallying be behind Sarraj government, and, and the journalist asked, "Would is this something?" that could sour the relationship he said no and he gave this he repeated that the same the, the issue of Idlib and how that had that wasn't enough of a reason to sour relationship either he said this is not a classical relationship it's a strategic partnership and I thought that was a very interesting way to describe it of course this is what 
how things look today, and it might be different uh, in a year's time. But nonetheless, you have a significant number of uh, Syrians that are now being driven up to the Turkish border, 40, 50,000 in the immediate vicinity of the border. And nonetheless, Erdogan and Putin really managed to hold on to this relationship and uphold it almost as a model partnership. I think it's puzzling and worth thinking more about in terms of what's happening in this new age of disorder that we've, we've found ourselves in. I think both leaders feel comfortable in striking these sort of ad hoc partnerships that don't necessarily have normative component. Thank you. We're at the, we're at the end of our time. And that's, a, a, you know, a challenging note for Europeans to end on. Um, I'm sure we'll continue to follow the situation in Libya closely. And I think more generally, this question of what role and how the, the EU can position itself as a, an actor that believes in uh, international rules and uh, a kind of normative based solutions, how they position and establish themselves in a period which has exactly those characteristics that you mentioned. So the last thing before we finish, we're going to do our bookshelf segment, where I'll ask each of you to to mention, recommend something that you've been reading recently, either relating to what we discussed today or something very different. Tarek, why don't I start with you? What's, What's on your bookshelf? Well, something that could be a nice backdrop to what we discussed today is uh, it's called the, the Confines of the Shadow by Alessandro Spina. It's a series of, of short stories that's beautifully written, kind of based in colonial era uh, Benghazi. And it really shows the interplay between the, the coming Italian culture of the time and the, uh, the Libyans who were there. It's a brilliant series of stories that kind of map this, this story over the 1920s. Thanks. And Arturo? Oh, my suggestion is is to read um, a recent article by by Wolfram Lacker, that is one of the main experts on Libya, and particularly on the uh, military aspect. And uh, this 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 uh, article he wrote in November is entitled uh, "International Schemes: A Libyan Realities," where he explained very uh, very well that. Any attempts at appeasing after risk further escalating Libya's civil war. I think that is the main, uh, the main core of, of, the, of the crisis and the Libyan problem. Thank you. And um, Asli? Well, uh, let me uh, lighten this uh, heavy uh, load of reading with an, a, a novel, uh, Balkan Triology by Olivia Manning. It's a classic. I had not read it. Uh, the story of a couple in Romania at the beginning of the Second World War. But it's not just sort of the story of uh, great powers during the war, but also the portrait of a marriage. It's an old book, but definitely worth uh, reading as a novel. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all. We'll put up links to all of those suggestions on our webpage and also links to a couple of recent ECFR publications on Libya. So this podcast will be back next week. In the meantime, thanks very much to Tarek Megrisi, to Arturo Varvelli, to Asli Aydintashbash, and from me, Anthony Dworkin, goodbye until next week. The researcher of ECFR's podcasts is Hannah-Sophie Bollman, and our editor is Marlena Riedel. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, 
And please give us recommendations on whichever platform you use, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Thank you and goodbye.